Perfect Stranglers contains graphic and explicit content suitable for mature listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Perfect Stranglers. This is Kylie. And I'm Bree. I don't know why I had to need to do that. I just really felt like I really needed to hype you up there for a sec. I don't know why. So what do you up to today, Brie? What's the what's your weekend plan? Uh my grandparents are in town from Milwaukee. So I'm going to go hang out with them for a little while. Uh eat some French toast. Ooh, that yeah. sounds good. Mm-hmm. Our washer has been broken. Uh it needed a new motor or whatever, or I don't know. I don't know washer stuff. Um, but we got it replaced and now I have a mountain of laundry because, you know, I wasn't able to do laundry for a little while. So I'll be doing mm-hmm. some of that today. Mm-hmm. That's about it. How is your, um, how is your sorting your life into joy and not joyous things from the lady from Netflix? Mm, I'm seriously lacking on that. Okay. I just thought the listeners needed a follow up. Yeah, I still wanted like I'm yeah, I'm just looking around here and it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. There's you didn't find joy in sorting your life into joy. I did, not but joyous piles. I don't know. I don't know what happened. I need Marie Kondo to come help me. I didn't I yeah. I still have to do the basement. And a lot of my stuff that like cuz you're supposed to um you're supposed to like put all like things together so you can see your whole collection of like you know all of your notebooks all of your makeup all of your skincare items and you're supposed to put them so you can see all of them together so you can see holy crap i have all this stuff i don't need all this stuff so i have things that i know i have the other thing the other items like for example I have a whole bunch of like body, like Bath and Body Works body sprays and stuff like that. I have some up here. I have some downstairs. And so I have boxes of stuff that I want to take downstairs because then those things that are all downstairs, then I can get them together. And so I got a lot of work downstairs to do. Yeah. Okay. Well, at least you know what you have to do. At least you're not like completely lost in what you even have to do yet. I am not. I'm not lost. I'm just kind of at a like self-imposed standstill right now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's okay you got further than most people probably yeah yeah i'm still working on it well guys we uh we have not a long one today but an interesting one today so i kind of want to hype right hop right into it and also if you listen to the previous episode you know that we record a couple at a time and i'm going to look at a house in 45 minutes so <laughs> we need to record this episode yep. gotta keep her moving so Keep, let's keep her moving. Everly says that. She goes, come on, keep her moving. <laughs> <That's> so cute. <laughs> but she can't say, she doesn't say keep. I don't know. She might say keep now. But she would say peep her moving because she couldn't uh-huh. see her K's for a while. So peep her moving. Cute. <laughs> so cute. Oh, I love her. Okay. Do you want to do the um the spiel? Yeah. So don't the forget to, to like, rate, and uh, subscribe to our podcast. You can do this on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. It helps us get seen and it helps people find us. Uh, If you want to give us like a five-star rating, we wouldn't be mad about it. Uh, And also, don't forget to uh, 
um, write in your stories because from time to time, like today, uh, we read them so that everyone can enjoy your cool stories. Um, you can contact us through our social media. We have Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, we also have an email that you can send us your true weird stories, things that have happened to you. Uh, our email is contact at perfectstranglers.com. And while you're at it, check out our website, perfectstranglers.com. Beautiful. Beautiful. I feel like we should just cut that, use that as our housekeeping every single time. Uh, that was very smooth. Well, we could, but I think Nicole would have an aneurysm because the levels would might be different. Yeah. From time to time. <laughs> She'd have a coronary. <laughs> we'll save her. We'll ever not do that. And sometimes like, so I have like friends and uh, people I've talked to in the past or whatever who listen to our, <laughs> listen to our podcast and they talk about our housekeeping. Like you never know what you're going to get. You never know if it's going to go smooth. It's going to be rocky. You never know what's going to happen. <laughs> like, that's very true. If Bree does it, it's pretty smooth. If Kylie does it, you know what? It's all over the place. You gotta, you gotta know what's going down in Strangler Town. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So today we're doing uh, something a little bit different because we had kind of an influx of requests, listener stories, ideas. Um, one of the ideas was to do the Yesplanty. Yesplanty? Yesplanty. Is that it? It's Yesplanty. Michigan, you know. Yeah. Yesplanty. Uh, Ripper. We've had a couple people who have reached out about that. Um, we've had a couple people uh, reach out about some other d- different like Michigan and Wisconsin murderers. So that one, we have a few episodes. I think I have, we have like 18 more episodes to record this season. So we should do that one. Um, so that was brought up. But a couple other things that were brought up was um, something around Lake Michigan, a murder that happened around Lake Michigan in 1880s, a couple scary stories, and someone named Missy reached out to us um, about possibly meeting David Spanbauer <gasps> from our very first episode. Oh, my God. So we're going to do some listener, up- listener requests slash listener stories today. We're starting off with Missy. So she says, hi, Stranglers. Long-time listener, first-time caller slash, me- slash messenger, and okay, the girls at Everly's old daycare, Dawn and Ashley, they used to say to me when I went into her daycare all the time, hey, first-time, what did they say? Hey, first-time caller, or long-time listener, first-time caller. They used to say that all the time to me when I would walk in, because they listened to this. <laughs> so the fact that this Missy woman messaged first-time caller slash messenger, they're going to get a kick out of it. <laughs> Hi, ladies. Yeah. Anyway, so Missy says, Hi, Stranglers. Longtime listener, first time caller slash, slash messenger. I am an older listener, 47. Gasp. You're not older, that is Missy. Not you're more mature and experienced than you know old. what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah. So let's get into it. She says, I really enjoy your podcast and listen often. I know I am not your target demographic, but as a Wisco gal, I can relate, a.k.a. Wisconsin. Um, She says, I first found your podcast this past summer. I was with a group of friends and I shared the story about how I believe I was almost a victim of serial killer David Spanbauer. I was 19 and living at home in tiny Reedfield, Wisconsin, commuting to UW Oshkosh. Reedfield is about 20 minutes away from Appleton, Oshkosh, and Wapaka, the center of a triangle where the Spanbauer murders took place. 
I was walking on my country road and I passed a man in a car and I didn't think much of it. But as I walked back, a neighbor, everyone's a neighbor in a small town. True. Yes, they are. Um, but the neighbor called me over to him and told me to walk right uh, to my cousin's told me to walk right to my cousin's bar, which was on the corner. I got the feeling that he was directing me to not go home because the guy in the sedan was making him really nervous and he didn't want me followed. Well, weeks later, later, Spanbauer was arrested at, and my bar owner's cousin recognized him as a man who had been in the bar a few times recently. When I told this to my friends, I was surprised to find out that they too had run-ins with him and he actually was following my friends while we were walking. Oh my God. I didn't know them back then, so it was a really strange coincidence. She says, I found your podcast by searching for David Spanbauer True Crime Podcasts. I was surprised to hear that he was your first episode. I've been meaning to share this message with you for some time. I listened to your housekeeping. <laughs> last, I love that. Um, last week, I read a headline that there was another UW-Laxo University of Wisconsin Lacrosse student that was found dead. I got to thinking about you and wondered if you've ever done an investigative piece on the smiley face killers. Very bold of you to call these investigative pieces. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very, very. Um, that makes us sound far more educated than we are on this. But thank you so much for your. Uh, we're gonna now be calling these investigative pieces. Thanks. I love it. I feel like I love it. I'm doing like a sixth grade report. Is what I feel like I'm doing. Yes, I feel. I call these my book reports. Yeah, these are my book reports that we do every week. But now they're investigative pieces. Okay. Yes. I <laughs> start telling people that i do investigative pieces where can i read your work oh a podcast called perfect stranglers one time i talked about how my vagina is the color of a strawberry milkshake it's a great podcast yeah you should put it on your resume (laughs) (laughs) seriously it's on my linkedin this this podcast is on my we have a linkedin you guys if you don't know (laughs) future employers please listen we have a linkedin This got off the rails real quick. Sorry, Missy. Um, She says, I got to thinking about you and wondered if you've ever done an investigative piece on the smiley face killers. Could this be another one of their victims? Thank you for all you do and making me realize how strange Wisconsin in the Midwest is. I'm glad not all the weird stuff happens here, but there sure is a lot. Thank you so much, Missy, for sending that in. Yes. You're too kind. You really could have been. Yes, you're too kind. Have, you have a lot of faith in us, and we appreciate that. Um, <laughs> could you imagine, first off, could you imagine seeing Spanbauer and be like, I was just walking on that road, and I was told to go to my cousin's bar because there was a creepy guy in a sedan. And then years later, you meet people that you didn't know, and they're like, wait a second, I had that experience, and y'all could have been victims. Yeah. Like, how crazy would that be? That's insane. That, yeah, that gives me chills a little bit. All right, so the next story um, is a whole ass article that I'm going to read because I was going to go through and do the cliff notes on it, but it was just a really well-written article. A friend of mine from um, Roller Derby sent this in. This article is from the National Park Services or NPS.gov. They have a whole section on ghost towns. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. I love ghost towns. They have a towns. whole section on... And like abandoned places. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, they have a whole section. I saw a TikTok about the um uh what's the the bay that's by um DC Cape Chesapeake Bay, the Chesapeake Bay. Yes, you sent me that. There are tons of TikTok. There are tons of ghost ships there. Uh Yeah, really cool. Anyway, so um this is a 
I was I was gonna say Wisconsin, like Michigan and Wisconsin. <laughs> it's it's Michigan. It's like it's Michigan on Lake Michigan, not Wisconsin. <laughs> That's where I'm from, Wisconsin. <gasps> I love it. Anyway, so Errol. It's spelled A R A L. Is this word I'm gonna try and say Errol? Okay, I think it's Errol. So it says Errol was located on Lake Michigan, where Otter Creek. Creek empties into the lake just south of Ash Road, a few miles south of Empire, Michigan. Today, this is one of the most popular swimming beaches on the lakeshore, but in, in the 1880s, Errol was a booming lumber town. When the United States acquired land, it first had to be surveyed before it was made available to individuals. In the summer of 1849, Orange Risden was one of the surveyors uh, assigned to the area and Grand the area around Grand Traverse Bay in 1853, soon after he fin- his name was Orange. What? I can't with that. Um, his As soon as he finished the survey, Risden and his wife, Sally, bought 122 acres where Otter Creek emptied into Lake Michigan. The U.S. Civil War began in 1861 and induced able-bodied men to join the Union forces, and the U.S. government offered a $100 bounty to men who enlisted. By 1863, the bounty was increased to $300, and finally, a draft was instituted. After interesting provision, after interesting provision of the Draft Act allowed drafted men to avoid service by hiring a substitute or paying $300. One of the men receiving a draft notice was Robert F. Bancroft, who was married and 30 years old. He chose to take advantage of this provision by hiring a German immigrant to take his place as a soldier, but interestingly, he followed his replacement to the battlefield. Instead of carrying a gun, he brought his camera and became one of the first battlefield photographers. Wow. Following the war, the veterans returned home, and Robert Bancroft settled with his wife Julia and daughter Anna in Traverse City. He began buying land in Platte, Plate, P-L-A-T-T-E, Platte, sure, and yep. Lake Townships as investments, and in late 1864, he bought 122 anchors from Orange and Sally Risden of Saline, Michigan. Bancroft cleared 20 acres and built a log cabin for his family to live in. Then he planted some black locust trees and an apple orchard around the cabin. Lumber speculators soon arrived looking for strands of white pine. Most of the forests in this area were hardwood, but there were some some stands of uh, white pine inland from Otter Bay. By the 1870s, Daniel Thomas bought a five-acre parcel of Lake Michigan south of Otter Creek, but he decided to build a house across the road from Bancroft's. Lumber speculators were on their way north as the forests near Grand Haven and Muskegon were harvested. Dr. Arthur O'Leary, a distinctive-looking man of Irish descent, he was five foot eight, rather stocky with a full beard, typical Irishman, um, recognized the financial potential of the lumber around Otter Creek, so he began buying up large um, areas of forest and made plans to build a sawmill. While O'Leary didn't have any experience in the lumber business, so he began looking for someone who could manage his business, his enterprises. He found Charles T. Wright, who had grown up in New Mexico, but eventually moved to Racine, Wisconsin, and started a lumber operation with his brother. Charles Wright would become the manager of the lumber operation at Otter Creek and a central figure in the first murder in Benzie County. In 1879, Daniel Thomas and William Woodward built a dock on Bancroft's uh, Bancroft's property on Lake Michigan just north of Otter Creek. 
The sawmill was built on the south side of Otter Creek, not far from Lake Michigan. It was a two-story wood building typical of sawmills at that time. The creek was dammed to create a mill pond right in front of the sawmill. Not dammed as in you're you're damned, but damned like a dam. <laughs> just to clarify. Um, <laughs> the logs were um, floated down the creek to the mill pond and then lifted from the pond um, up an inclined ramp with a chain loop powered by the steam engine through the belt and pulley system that was also used to run the saw blade. The sawing was done on the second floor, and the mill was connected um, to the dock with an elevated roadway called a timber tramway built about eight feet above the ground. It led from the second floor of the sawmill down to the dock down a slight slope, so the wagons loaded with fresh-cut lumber um, that was easily moved um, from the shipping area along railroads on the tramway. The bridge was built upstream of the pond to carry traffic to the mill, and the boarding house was built south of that mill, and horse barns were built north of the creek mill of the creek. The mill operation finally began in 1881, producing white pine lumber. So it took them a few years to like get that up and running. So J or John J Tweedle was hired as a bookkeeper, and C F so Fred Cossett, um, Wright's wife's brother. So that'd be Wright's brother-in-law as a manager of the of the company store which was located south of main street he later took mr tweedle's place as a bookkeeper wright also hired a good blacksmith isaac ramo for metalwork and repairs peter stormer senior was hired to hired to ride the sawmill carriage and operate the set works um, and dogs to adjust for the desired thickness um tweedle tweedle Later built a farm just north of Errol, and Peter Sumter harvested lumber um, from um, North Manitou Island. So the mill was, um, sorry, I skipped a part. Raymond later moved to Glen Haven, and he was going to be the blacksmith for D.H. Day, and his daughter Donna would become Bertie Bancroft's wife. So Wright employed about 150 workers throughout the winter and about 50 in the summer to run the sawmill. Wright commuted between Wisconsin and Errol for several years, but by 1888, he built a house across from Robert Bancroft and he and his wife of four years moved in. By 1883, the lumber business was booming and the town was growing. A post office was um, built because there were so many people moving in. The community known as Otter Creek or the Kirk by locals um, is what it was now called. Uh, when they applied for a post office, their name was rejected because there was already an Otter Creek in Michigan. So Bancroft was the next suggestion. But again, that name had already been used. One of the ver- workers suggested the name Errol because of the beautiful Errol Sea in Europe. Locals commuted, continued to call it Otter Creek, though. So it was called Errol, but they just called it Otter Creek. Um, Dr. Frank Thurber was named the first postmaster and keep, in, keep his name in mind for he, too, would play a central role in the murder. In 1886, Robert Bancroft deeded one acre um, just east of the Bancroft home to the community for a log schoolhouse. It was situated at the base of the bluff just before the road curved up into the hill. The building was replaced later by a wood-framed building using lumber from the sawmill. It was used as the church every Sunday and as a community meeting hall. Bancroft also decided to build a new house in front of his original log cabin. They also built and operated the first general store in the area. 
Um, sometime before 1889, the sawmill did end up burning down, but O'Leary paid to have a new bigger mill built. In 1888, O'Leary sold, sold the mill to Helene Davis of Brookline, Massachusetts, but Wright retained the lease on the mill. Charles Wright managed the lumber operation well, but he had a bad temper and a reputation for fighting. Business at the mill went on as usual until 1889 when a rivalry development began, um, when a rivalry redeveloped between the sawmills at Errol and Edgewater. The political details behind the situation aren't really known, but the taxes on Wright's sawmill operation increased to a rate he believed to be unreasonable. And in protest, he decided, I'm not paying my taxes. A writ of attachment was obtained by the sheriff of um, the county and applied to the mill's yard, the mill yard's logs. This would have um, brought the operation to the halt and forced Wright to pay his taxes. While Benzie County Sheriff A.B. Chase handed the writ of attachment to his deputy, Neil A. Marshall of Benzonia. Marshall was a big man. He was six foot six and heavy set. On the morning of August 10th, 1889, Wright heard that the deputy sheriff was on his way to Ariel, or up to Errol to implement the writ. Well, Wright picked up his um, picked up his rifle and went with his crew to the roll the rollway just above the bridge to start rolling logs into the creek, which would carry them to the mill. At about 10 a.m., Deputy Marshall arrived and ordered Wright to stop moving the logs. A confrontation occurred. But Wright's men continued working, and around noon, Marshall went to the hotel for dinner. After dinner, Marshall was joined by Dr. Frank Thurber, a practicing physician and Lake Township treasurer who was responsible for issuing their writ of attachment of the logs. They headed towards the log rollway in Millyard from the company blacksmith shop. The blacksmith saw them approaching and told Wright who was there on an errand. Wright picked up his gun and went out to meet them. A struggle developed between Wright and Marshall. Wright released his grip on the rifle and took a few steps back, raised the gun, fired, killing Marshall with a single shot. Thurber then struggled with Wright for a rifle. After a short struggle, Wright released his grip on the rifle and pulled out a revolver from his pocket and shot Thurber in the head. He then shot Thurber again in the chest, eventually killing him. These murders occurred at about 2.30 p.m., the shootings were witnessed by a few of Wright's workers, but they were warned not to say anything. The bodies of the two men lay where they had fallen, but someone did put two umbrellas over the bodies to keep them out of the direct sun in the hot afternoon. Ew. The mill kept running for a short time, but Wright soon shut it down and paid his employees before disappearing into the woods. At this time, there was a telegraph line between Errol and Frankfurt with a branch line going to Benzonia. Prosecuting attorney George Koval received a wire in Benzonia about the murders. Case and uh, Sheriff Case and Koval, accompanied by the local news, um, newspaper editor and photographer, went immediately to Frankfurt, where they commanded the steamer um, Duar to take them and, and a posse of 20 men to Errol. They arrived just as the sun was setting and the full moon was rising. The search for Wright was unsuccessful, and the crowd found one of his employees. So Wright must have got up and escaped this whole situation. So uh, the crowd found one of his employees, Lahala, a handyman who was suspected of knowing where Wright was hiding. Lahala wouldn't tell them where Wright was, so the crowd got a rope, they got the rope from Dwyer and tied it around Lahala's neck and strung it over a branch of a near nearby tree. 
he was told that if he didn't talk, he would be lifted um, lifted towards the sky, and he was lifted right off the ground twice just before a third time he de- he decided to talk. Keep in mind, Lahala was a Native American at this time, which was a little bit testy. Mm-hmm. So he was threatened to be hunged or hanged. Um, at that moment, Wright emerged from the woods and was held by two other men. Wright was permitted to spend one hour of his distraught one hour with his distraught wife in privacy before being taken back to Frankfurt on the Dwyer. The following Wednesday, the trial of the trial of Charles T. Wright got underway. He was convicted on April thirtieth, nineteen eighty, of the murder in the first degree of Dr. Frank Frank Thurber. Did you say nineteen eighty? Eighteen eighty? Huh? Did you say nineteen eighty? Yeah. Yes, I did. Sorry, on eighteen ninety. Sorry. Eight. 1890. Um, he was convicted on, yes, he was convicted on April 30th of 1890 of the murder in the first degree of Dr. Frank Thurber. Wright was sentenced to the state prison at Jackson, Michigan for the remainder of his natural life. He spent the next 10 years in prison at Jackson working as the bookkeeper in the prison's office. In a strange turn of events, on December 31st, 1900, as one of his latest official acts, Michigan Governor Hazen S. Pingree for reasons only known to himself, commuted the sentence to 17 years and Wright was immediately paroled in spite of vehement protests by friends and relatives of the slain men. After his release, he found his former wife, who had divorced him and remarried. Wright made things so uncomfortable for her new husband that he left town. It was rumored that the Wrights left the area for the western U.S., Dr. Thurber had lived partway up the hill east of the schoolhouse, and everyone in the area knew him well, so the murder was a shock to the little town of Errol and the surrounding area. The mill kept running, with C.F. Crossit managing the operation for a few years. The valuation of the mill continued to decline, decline during this time, and in 1894, Dr. O'Leary, short, angry Irishman, bought the mill back from Davis. He offered the new lease to his niece, to his niece's husband, a commercial sawyer uh, named William R. Montgomery, who accepted and moved to Errol, occupying the same store as Wright had lived in. He sold a few groceries. He sold, it says he sold a few groceries. I don't know what that means. Um, in the fall, uh, so the stores, I don't know what the fuck. I didn't write this article. Um, in the fall of 1899, on a Sunday, when the mill was typically shut down at 3 p.m., the alarm was raised and the mill was on fire. Arson was suspected but cannot be proven. So the Mann brothers owned a company called Two Rivers Manufacturing in Manitowoc, Wisconsin. Their aerial operations began in 1893 and lasted until 1911. They owned 3.34 acres west of Errol along Lake Michigan, where they shipped basewood and elms logs to Wisconsin, so across Lake Michigan, to be made into barrels, tubs, um, buckets, etc. They didn't operate the mill, but floated large rafts of logs uh, to Wisconsin. And in later years, they used a used um, a scrow to ship the logs. And sometime after the Montgomery Mill burned down, um, around 1903, they built a shingle mill. So, in 1908, a new group arrived in Errol. They were super religious. They called themselves the Israel House of David. And except for the Bancroft family, they made up pretty much the entire town. They rebuilt the sawmill on the site of the previous ones. 
and it was located on new concrete footings because concrete was now a thing. The dock hadn't been used for a few years, um, but they fixed it up. They produced lumber, shingles, fence, fence posts, that type of thing. And the men lived in boarding houses who worked at the mill. Um, the house of David uh, maintained a barge on Otter Creek um, and a schooner. It's called the Rising Sun on Lake Michigan. Um, by 1911, the forest that everyone was working in was completely depleted and the house of David had to shut down the sawmill because they completely deforested the entire area and the mill was dismantled and they sold all of the lumber. Uh, Bertie Bancroft bought most of the land in buildings in Ariel and he and his family were the only ones living there until the family finally left in 1922. So they moved to Muskegon, but in 1925, Bertie and Donna Bancroft moved back to the area and built a restaurant and rooming house called Kentucky Kentuckyuin, called the Kentuckyuin. And that is the murder and history of the sawmill that we had two readers send this to us about this like old town. This town is no longer there. Oh. At all. Huh. It's like a ghost town. Yeah. So that's the first murder in that uh, that county. And I thought it was a nice little history lesson. Yeah. And it had Wisconsin and Michigan ties. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. I like it. Um, so next we are going to chat about, we have, two, we have two listener stories. The first one, these are from, uh, we got these on Reddit. So this first one says, I'm a psychiatric nurse, and early in my career, I worked at a residential mental health facility. One of our residents was an elective mute, which means that he didn't or wouldn't or couldn't talk, but there was no medical reasons as to why. He had spoken earlier in his life and in fact seemed quite normal back then, with the exception of him being close to seven feet tall. He'd been raised in the Deep South and joined the military when he was 19, but one night he vanished. He was declared AWOL, and eventually he was declared missing and dead. Ten years later, a seven-foot-tall man walked into a VA hospital emergency room in my part of the Midwest and said to the receptionist, My name is Marianne, Marianne Duchesne, not his real name, and I have been dead for ten years. Those were the last words he ever spoke. He was covered with dust. He was wearing the same clothes he'd been reported to be wearing the night he vanished. His social security number had not been used, and there was no identification on this person, or on his person. However, they were able to identify him, I guess, via fingerprints. The family was notified, but they said that they had already grieved their loss, or grieved their loss of this man, and that whoever was claiming to be him simply could not be. They ma- They demanded to not be contacted again. Marion paced all day, every day, moving his mouth of what looked like talking or muttering, but no sound came out. He had an unnerving habit of throwing his head back with his mouth wide open as if he were laughing wholeheartedly, but not even a breath could be heard. If I talked to him, he appeared to listen, periodically throwing his head back in that weird mimicky laughing way. Um, Various medications were tried, but they did not affect him either positively or negatively. Occupational therapy did nothing because Marion would just grin and, unless told to stay put, he'd get up and start pacing again. On my last day, the last thing I saw was Marion pacing in the parking lot, throwing his head back to laugh. Later, I wondered if all along I'd been dealing with a ghost. All these years later, I still don't know. Whoa. 
freaking creepy, right? Yeah. That's really weird. Yeah. Really weird. Like, where did you go for 10 years where you could survive and not a single trace of you was, you know? And you have the same weird. clothes. Same clothes. Yeah. Very weird. Okay. So this last one um, is another listener story. It says, we were driving um, my friend's really old beat up Subaru through a massive graveyard. We stopped and walked down a hill and came across a little pond. There was someone sitting on a rock on the other side of the pond, and the figure was all black, and we couldn't make out any features um, other than the fact that it looked like a man who was wearing some old-style top hat. We stupidly waved and shouted, hi. I imagine they didn't go, hi, but that's what I'm that's what I'm saying. <laughs> he didn't show any he didn't show any acknowledgement and continued sitting on the rock. All of a sudden, he jumped to his feet, started running towards us on the water, and then vanished into thin air slash thin water about halfway onto the pond. <laughs> my friend and I screamed and ran back to the car, but the car wouldn't start. Oh my god. As we heard something banging on the back of the car, it wasn't a constant bang, but every few seconds or so we would hear it. Nobody was outside, and from what we could see in the dark, but something was making noise in the car. I opened my phone and started dialing my mom to come give us a boost, but I had no service. None of us had any cell service. The next 30 minutes we were spent trying to get this car to start. No banging was heard afterward, and we felt this heavy pressure around us. Finally, the car started, and my friend hit the pedal to the metal. We sped out of the gra graveyard so fast, and immediately crossing the gates, all of our phones regained cell service. One thing I know for certain is that something or someone was out there, and it was not an animal or a human. That's crazy. Could you imagine? I have, I have one more. Should I read it quick? It's another shorter one. I have two more, actually. They're shorter. Okay. I'll read them. True story time. I was about four or five years old and my parents had just separated. My mom was living at a two-bedroom apartment on ground level and I had my own room, but I preferred to sleep in her bed whenever I stayed with her. Sounds freaking familiar. Mm -hmm. Anyway, our two, our two bedrooms were at the end of a hallway directly across from each other. Our apartment was on the first floor and I remembered that it was in the middle of the summer and my mom had a window open in her room, which was directly behind the bed above the headboard. Their apartment was floor level, like I said, these rooms were. Anyways, I woke up in the middle of the night and remember sitting up and seeing that our cat was sitting in the door frame of my mom's room. Her door was open and you could partially see into my bedroom. This was strange because our cat was typically always in bed with us. As I was watching him, he walked into my bedroom and meowed. I turned to face my mom and wake her up. In the three or four seconds it took her to wake up and ask me what was wrong, we both looked back up in the doorframe and there was a man standing in my open door making his way out of my bedroom. I still don't know how she managed to do it so quickly, but my mother proceeded to pick me up and literally throw me out the screen window. Again, we were on the first floor. It was maybe a three or four drop to the ground. She quickly followed and we were able to start screaming for help and someone called, someone called 911. The police came but didn't see any signs of forced entry. Only that our front door was unlocked, which led them to believe that the man must have exited that way. The strange thing was that my mom swore up and down that she had locked the door that night with a deadbolt and chain lock. About a week later, she was cleaning the kitchen and opened up our water heater closet and found a notebook with names and drawings, as well as a pair of gloves and some gum wrappers. The police were called again, but all they could do was speculate that the man had been in our house and hid until we were asleep. Oh my god. Oh my god. Ah! 
I don't want to go look at houses anymore. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yuck, I hate that. People living in houses is is the scariest thing we talk to we talk about. I swear to God. Yeah. It's the scariest thing we talk about. Yeah. For real. Okay. Last one. <clears throat> I grew up in a funeral home. <laughs> Hell of a sentence to start out with. <laughs> I grew up in a funeral home. I helped out in the office. When I was about 15, we got a call from a man whose wife and infant baby had been murdered in cold blood. There were a few clues. It made headlines and cops set up surveillance at the viewing. I was It was heartbreaking um, as the mother was holding the baby in her arms. That is heart-wrenching. Oh, oh my God. Jesus Christ. Um, I was asked to take the flower cards and periodically get the husband get the husband and ask if he recognized the names. Uh, then I photocopied them and put them back. I did it because I was a quote kid and people knew me um, and I was unobtrusive. I talked to the husband quite a bit and he seemed devastated and shaken. The cops told me that they had an eyewitness of someone leaving the house that day of the murder. The witness was a three-year-old girl. She recognized the man leaving. It was the husband's best friend. Turns out that the friend and the husband had made a pact to kill each other's families and run off with their secretaries. The little girl identified the friend, and I guess one of them cracked. They both went to jail on multiple counts, and all of the testimony, all of this on the testimony of a three-year-old girl. I still cannot believe to this day that that man stood right beside me multiple times, and I had no clue. I don't think I ever looked at at life the same way after that. Yeah. I wouldn't either. That's, I don't even have a, like, I, I have no words. <laughs> like, Me holy either. crap. The fact that he seemed devastated and she, as a 15-year-old, had to keep showing that that guy these uh, these cards or whatever and be like, do you recognize anyone? Do you, yeah. Is there anything? Like, the fact that she had to do it because she was innocent, yet he was the murderer and you just unknowingly sent a 15 year old to someone who just murdered did familicide yeah yeah i could not wow fathom that yeah anyway so those are our listener stories for today those were good up from the norm yeah Yeah, i like it i liked them that uh the uh man asleep in or the man that was in the house is definitely the and david stanbauer yeah (laughs) gives me the heaps jeebs um, you guys, if you have any listener stories you want to tell us, uh, feel free and uh, email us, contact at Perfect Stranglers, or shoot us a DM like Missy and a couple of other of you did, and we will go ahead and read them out for you guys. Um, and that's all I got for you today. Cool. Till next we'll talk week. Talk with you next Thursday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bye. Bye.